So would you turn to John chapter 15, please? (coughs) And we'll read verses uh, 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. I'm going to do things a little bit differently today in that I actually want to uh, read you a letter that Hudson Taylor wrote to his sister back in England concerning this issue of abiding in Christ. And this letter is far more eloquent than... I could possibly come up with. Um, so what I'll do, <coughs> excuse me, is read that, and then I'll make some comments to draw some stuff out as we get to the end. <coughs> but because it's a hard task, because this is going to be about fifteen minutes worth of reading, I've um, copied the material so you can follow um, in the text. 
The letter comes from this book, um, Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission, The Growth of a Work of God. And uh, there was a point, Hudson Taylor, where we, we, some of you who were with us before, um, began to see something of Hudson Taylor in the video. Um, a very earnest man of God, a man of great faith, um, and once he'd started the China Inland Mission, um, completely reliant upon God uh, for the work of that mission, for the supplies to enable that mission uh, to, uh, to work out. Um, and I think if we knew him at that point, we would have said, what an amazing man of God he is. However, at that point, he was in great turmoil because of what seemed to him his inability to live for God. He was doing great things for God. He was very close to God, and perhaps because he was so close to God, he was aware, truly aware, of how much he lacked. And there's a, a chapter in the book called, uh, you, as you've got an extract from there, called The Exchanged Life. Um, you've only got a part of that chapter. <clears throat> and this really is the crux, the pivot around which the whole of this book, the whole of the Hudson Taylor, the whole of the CIM story pivots. And I wanted to share with you, because I found this an inspiration, an absolute inspiration and an awful challenge. And I wanted to uh, share it with you. So I'll read this extract. Um, it starts with, <clears throat> there's just a page to set the scene, and then the letter to his uh, sister. Uh, Mr. McCarthy, who you are introduced to in the first line, was one of the missionaries. I think he was one of the first group uh, that went out um, with Hudson Taylor to start the China Inland Mission. Their ministry, just to say a little more about it, was a call to go to the most inmost parts of China, where foreigners had never been before. There were missions in China, but they were predominantly um, around the coast. And as you saw from the film, those of you that saw it, they were really reluctant to go inland. Um, don't know why, but they were. But Hudson Taylor was called to go inland. Um, and that led to, well, some things that we would call amazing adventures um, and great privations as they traversed China. You think how big China is? They traversed China on foot. <clears throat> so the exchange life. In the old home at Hang Chow, Mr. McCarthy was sitting writing. The glory of a great sunrise was upon him. The light whose inward dawning makes all things new. To tell his beloved friend and leader about it was his longing, for he knew from his own experience something of the exercise of mind through which Mr. Taylor was passing. But where to begin? How to put it into words? He knew not. 
and the day was full of pressing duties. I do wish I could have a talk with you now, he wrote, about the way of holiness. At the time you were speaking to me about it, it was the subject of all others occupying my thoughts. Not from anything I had read, not from what my brother had written even, so much as from a consciousness of failure, a constant falling short of that which I felt should be aimed at, an unrest, a perpetual striving to uh, find some way by which I might continuously enjoy that communion, that fellowship at times so real, but more often so visionary, so far off. Do you know, dear brother, I now think that this striving effort, longing, hoping for better days to come, is not the true way to happiness, holiness or usefulness. Better, no doubt, better, no doubt, far better than being satisfied with our poor attainments, but not the best way after all. I have been struck with a passage from a book of yours left here entitled Christ is All. I've forgotten, for those of you that can't get on with the small print, I've done some uh, slightly bigger versions for you. Does anybody else want a larger copy? (coughs) Sorry about that, I should have uh, remembered that to start with. So, I have been struck with a passage from a book of yours left here, entitled, Christ is All. It says, Believer, you mourn your shortcomings. You find the hated monster, sin, still striving for the mastery. Evil is present when you would do good. Help is laid up for you in Christ. Seek clearer interest in him. They who most deeply feel that they have died in Christ and paid in him sin's penalties, ascend to highest heights of godly life. He is most holy who has most of Christ within, and joys most fully in the finished work. It is defective faith which clogs the feet and causes many a fall. This last sentence I think I now fully endorse, to let my loving Saviour work in me. His will, my sanctification, is what I would... Sorry, uh, to let my loving Saviour work in me his will. My sanctification is what I would live for by his grace. Abiding, not striving or struggling. Looking off unto him. Trusting him for present power. Trusting him to subdue all inward corruption. Resting in the love of an almighty Saviour. In the conscious joy of a complete salvation. A salvation from all sin. This is his word. Willing that his will should be truly, uh, should truly be supreme. This is not new, and yet tis new to me. I feel as though the first dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. I hail it with trembling, yet with trust. I seem to have got to the edge only, but of a sea which is boundless. To have sipped only, but of that which fully satisfies. Christ, literally all, seems to me now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. May he lead us into the realisation of his unfathomable fullness. And then there's a, an entry 
from Hudson Taylor's journal. Here, I feel, is the secret. Not asking how I am to get sap out of the vine into myself, but remembering that Jesus is the vine. The root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit, all indeed, eh? And far more too. He is the soil and sunshine, air and rain, more than we can ask, think or desire. And just remember there in that passage the, um, the picture of a life in Christ that Jesus gave the disciples and us, of him as the rootstock, of the, the body of the vine, and we are the branches off of the vine to bear fruit. And here Hudson Taylor has realised he had a wrong view. He asked, um, how am I to get sap out of the vine into myself? But now he remembered that Jesus was the vine and he, Hudson Taylor, was therefore part of the vine. Let us not then want to get anything out of him, but rejoice in being ourselves in him, one with him, and consequently with all his fullness. Not seeking for faith to bring holiness, but rejoice in the fact of perfect holiness in Christ. Let us realise that, inseparably one with him, this holiness is ours, and accepting the fact, find it so indeed. But I must stop. And then the letter to his sister. In, as this is about two, three months later, in October 1869. So many thanks for your long, dear letter. I do not think you have written me such a letter since we have been in China. I know it is with you as with me. Then there's a few words which was a, a sentence garbled in the scanning. Mind and body will not bear more than a certain amount of strain or do more than a certain amount of work. As to work, mine was never so plentiful, so responsible or so difficult. The weight and strain are all gone. The last month or more has been perhaps the happiest of my life and I long to tell you a little of what the Lord has done for my soul. I do not know how far I may be able to make myself intelligible about it for there is nothing new or strange or wonderful yet all is new. In a word, whereas once I was blind, now I see. Perhaps I shall make myself more clear if I go back a little. Well, dearie, my mind has been greatly exercised for six or eight months past, feeling the need personally and for our mission of more holiness, life, power in our souls. But personal need stood first and was the greatest. I felt the ingratitude, the danger, the sin of not living nearer to God. I prayed, agonised, fasted, strove, made resolutions, read the word more diligently, sought more time for retirement and meditation. But all was without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin began, uh, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew that if I could only abide in Christ, all would be well. But I could not. I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my eye from him from a moment, but pressure of duties, sometimes very trying, constant interruptions apt to be so wearing, often caused me to forget him. Then one nerves, one's nerves 
get so fretted in this climate that temptations to irritability, hard thoughts and sometimes unkind words are all the more difficult to control. Each day brought its register of sin and failure, of lack of power. To will was indeed present with me, but how to perform I found not. Then came the question, is there no rescue? Must it be thus to the end? Constant conflict, and instead of victory, too often defeat. How too could I preach with sincerity that to those who received Jesus, to them, uh, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, i.e. godlike, when it was not so in my own experience. Instead of growing stronger, I seemed to be getting weaker and to have less power against sin. And no wonder, for faith and even hope were getting very low. I hated myself. I hated my sin, and yet I gained no strength against it. I felt I was a child of God. His spirit in my heart would cry, in spite of all, Abba, Father. But to rise to my privileges as a child, I was utterly powerless. I thought that holiness, practical holiness, was to be gradually attained by diligent use of the means of grace. And that means prayer and Bible study and worship and so forth. I felt that there was nothing I so much desired in this world, nothing I so much needed. But so far from in any measure attaining it, the more I pursued it and strove after it, the more it eluded my grasp till hope itself almost died out. And I began to think that perhaps to make heaven the sweeter, God would not give it down here. I do not think I was striving to attain it in my own strength. I knew I was powerless. I told the Lord so and asked him to give me help and strength. And sometimes I almost believed, uh, sorry, sometimes I almost believed he would keep and uphold me. But on looking back in the evening, alas, there was but sin and failure to confess and mourn before God. <clears throat> I would not give you the impression that this was the daily experience of all those long, weary months. It was a too frequent state of soul, that toward which I was tending and which almost ended in despair. And yet never did Christ seem more precious a saviour who could and would save such a sinner. And sometimes there were seasons not only of peace, but of joy in the Lord. But they were transitory, and at best there was a sad lack of power. Oh, how good the Lord was in bringing this conflict to an end. All the time I felt assured that there was in Christ all I needed, but the practical question was how to get it out. He was rich, Truly, but I was poor. He strong, but I weak. I knew full well that there was in the root, the stem, abundant fatness. But how to get it into my puny little branch was the question. As gradually the thought was dawning on me, I saw that faith was the only prerequisite, was the hand to lay hold on his fullness and make it my own. But I had not this faith, I strove for it, but it would not come. Tried to exercise it, but in vain. Seeing more and more the wondrous supply of grace laid up in Jesus, 
the fullness of our precious Saviour. My helplessness and guilt seemed to increase. Sins committed appeared but as trifles compared with the sin of unbelief which was their cause, which could not or would not take God at his word, but rather made him a liar. Unbelief was, I felt, the damning sin of the world, yet I indulged in it. I prayed for faith, but it came not. What was I to do? When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus, as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, but saw the light before I did, wrote, and I quote from memory, but how to get faith strengthened, not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. If we believe not, he abideth faithful. I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave you. Ah, there is rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I'll strive no more. For as for has he not promised to abide with me, never to leave me, never to fail me, and dearie, he never will. But this was not all he showed me, nor one half. As I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed spirit poured direct into my soul. How great seemed my mistake in having wished to get the sap, the fullness out of him. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. The vine now I see is not the root merely, but all. Root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not only that. He is soil and sunshine, air and showers, and ten thousand times more than we have ever dreamed, wished for or needed. Oh, the joy of seeing this truth. I do pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know and enjoy the riches freely given us in Christ. Oh, my dear sister, it is a wonderful thing to be really one with a risen and exalted Saviour, to be a member of Christ. Think what it involves. Can Christ be rich and I poor? Can your right hand be rich and the left poor? Or your head be well fed while your body starves? Again, think of its bearing on prayer. Could a bank clerk say to a customer, it was only your hand wrote that cheque, not you? Or, I cannot pay this sum to your hand, but only to yourself. No more can your prayers or mine be discredited if offered in the name of Jesus. That is, not in our own name or for the sake of Jesus merely, but on the ground that we are his, his members. So long as we keep within the extent of Christ's credit, a tolerably wide limit. If we ask anything unscriptural or not in accordance with the will of God, Christ himself could not do that. But if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us and we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. And that's from 1 John 5. The sweetest part of it one may speak of, if one may speak of one part being sweeter than another, 
is the rest which full identification with Christ brings. I am no longer anxious about anything as I realise this, for he, I know, is able to carry out his will, and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how, that is rather for him to consider than for me, for for in the easiest positions he must give me his grace, And in the most difficult, his grace is sufficient. It little matters to my servant whether I send him to buy a few pennies worth of things or the most expensive articles. In either case, he looks to me for the money and brings me his purchases. So if God place me in great perplexity, must he not give me much guidance? In positions of great difficulty, much grace. In circumstances of great pressure and trial, much strength. No fear that his resources will be unequal to the emergency. And his resources are mine, for he is mine, and is with me and dwells in me. All this springs from the believer's oneness with Christ. And since Christ has thus dwelt in my heart by faith, how happy I have been. I wish I could tell you instead of writing about it. (coughs) I am no better than before, May I not say in a sense, I do not wish to be, nor am I striving to be, but I am dead and buried with Christ, eh? and risen to and ascended, and now Christ lives in me. The life that I now have in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I now believe I am dead to sin. God reckons me so and tells me to reckon myself so. He knows best. All my past experience may have shown that it was not so, but I dare not say it is not now when he says it is. I feel and know that old things have passed away. I am as capable of sinning as ever, but Christ is realised as present as never before. He cannot sin and he can keep me from sinning. I cannot say, I'm sorry to have to confess it, that since I've seen this light I've not sinned, but I do feel there was no need to have done so. And further, walking more in the light, my conscience has been more tender. Sin has been instantly seen, confessed, pardoned, and peace and joy with humility instantly restored. With one exception, when for several hours my peace and joy did not return, from want as I had to learn of full confession and from some attempt to justify self. Faith I now see is the substance of things hoped for, not mere shadow. It is not less than sight, but more. Sight only shows the outward form of things. Faith gives the substance. You can rest on substance, feed on substance. Christ dwelling in the heart by faith, i.e. his word of promise credited, is power indeed, is life indeed, and Christ and sin will not dwell together nor can we have his presence with love of the world or carefulness about many things. And I'll stop there. It's just a a closing paragraph after that. So there are really just a few comments to make because there's not time to do more. As I examined this concept of abiding in Christ, I discovered that there were 
a number of characteristics of it. Because whenever I read that in that passage in, in John 15, I always think, well, what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, we saw some of it from Hudson Taylor. Um, but there are a number of attributes to abiding in Christ. One is that God's word abides in us. And to do that, it means that, that God's word is actually informing the way we live. He's feeding our mind, transforming our mind, that we might live more like, uh, like Christ. And that means for the word to abide in us, we have to study the word. We have to get to grips with the word. We have to see what it says and pray it through into our own lives. Another thing that you see is that love abides in us. And this is agape love. And we read in uh, 1 John chapter 4 that this agape love comes from God. It is a supply of God in us. And agape love is about being concerned for the benefit and well-being of others. So it's God's love working out through us towards others in all sorts of ways. So the word abides in us, his love abides in us, and that love leads also to obedience. And obedience kind of abides in us. And this isn't about legalistically following the rules. It's about seeking to bring pleasure to God because we love him. Those that we love, we want to please. And therefore we do things that are in line with their will. We don't cross them, we don't go against them. And so it is when God's love abides in us. That love leads to obedience. And his Holy Spirit abides in us. We read frequently in the Bible that God gives us his Holy Spirit. And it's his Holy Spirit that gives the power to all these things to abide in us. There are also other things that we see. There is fruit when we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. And there's always a question in John uh, 15 of, well, what does this fruit mean? Well, it's everything. Everything that comes from your life because you live in Christ and the Holy Spirit works in you, a fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's um, our service, our willing and loving service of God. And it's the outcome of that service. Believers, disciples, everything that you do, empowered by God to bring pleasure to God, to bring honour to God, is the fruit. And this is fruit that we read in there that abides. Also, prayer. Prayer comes from all of this, as we read at the end of that John 15 passage. But this is prayer centred on God's will. And Hudson Taylor said it in there. That if we have prayer that is centred on God's will, then we can be confident that God has heard us and we have the things that we have asked for because they are in the centre of God's will. And to do that, one needs to ask God what his will is. This isn't about, oh, I would like this. God, please give it to me or give it to us. It's, Lord, what do you want? In this situation, what do you want? How are you calling me? How are you leading me? And then we have to listen to him and hear what his answers are to us. And then we need to pray accordingly. Because there will be, if he's calling us to do something, 
There will be supplies that are needed. There are things that need to happen. And we can pray those things specifically. And then there is faith. Most of that letter from Hudson Taylor was about faith. Really deep, abiding faith. And often when we think about faith and when we pray for things, we think in terms of we've kind of got to, we've got to be faithful. We're going to be faithful. I've, I've prayed this, therefore I'm going to believe it. But how different is that to positive thinking? Not a lot. Not a lot. This screwing ourselves up to be, you know, to have faith isn't always faith. In there, I don't know whether you picked it up in the letter, but as you read through that book, what you discover is that for Hudson Taylor... Faith became resting on Christ's faithfulness. Resting on God's faithfulness. God is the supply. That's what he said, you know. Um, if, I'm, if I'm being put somewhere, if God is going to lead me to this place, into this situation, then he will supply. I am part of God. God is rich. He has all things. Can I be hungry? You know, can, can my head be well fed and the rest of my body be starved? No, we need to rely there upon God and rest in his faithfulness, trusting that if he's called us to do something or put us into a situation, he will provide all that we need. And when we rush off to try and do things our way, we're actually turning away from God's supply, trying to do it our way, which is inevitably not as good, not as powerful, not as plentiful. And in terms of faith, this resting, it, it struck me as I was thinking about this this morning. It's about being constantly, the abiding is about being constantly in God, in Christ. And it struck me, it's a bit like a mobile phone. Mobile phones have this horrible habit of running out of charge. And then you have to plug them in again and charge them up again. Whereas, if they're always plugged in, I mean, they stop being mobile, but... They never run out. And that's the illustration. Forget the, the fact that it becomes a tethered phone, an unmobile phone. It never runs out of supply if it's constantly plugged in. And we need to be constantly plugged into Christ to rest on him and see his supply, to trust in that. And there was just one little passage. This is what he said. I am no longer anxious about anything as I realise this, for he I know is able to carry out his will and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how, that is rather for him to consider than for me. For in the easiest positions he must give me his grace and in the most difficult his grace is sufficient. So if God places me in great perplexity, must he not give me much guidance? In positions of great difficulty, much grace. In circumstances of great pressure and trial, much strength. No fear that his resources will be unequal to the emergency. And his resources are mine, for he is mine and is with me and dwells in me. And as you read that book, the beauty is not only do you see Hudson Taylor go through this struggle and come to these understandings and this empowerment of God, 
the rest of that book is showing how it works out, showing it's real, that it's, it's practical and real, not theoretical theology, if you like. But as I say, that also then leads on to this God-centered, listening, obedient prayer. And if God's calling us to do specific things, there will be specific needs that we have. And we can call on God specifically to make those specific supplies, if you'll excuse all the specifics, because it is very specific. And then we need to follow on in obedience. If God's calling to something, if we ask him and he asks us to do something and we ignore him, what would you, what do you do to people who constantly ignore you? You end up not bothering. Now God never not bothers with us, but we must be a great trial to him if we ask him for instruction, for leading and guidance, and then we are not obedient to that leading and abide, um, and guidance. And Hudson Taylor summarized all of this before he even got to this place. As God's work done God's way will not lack God's supplies. And that's all kinds of supplies, whether it be money, whether it be strength, all that stuff that is, is written about. And all of that comes real as he lives out his life. But that is therefore an illustration, if you like a role model, of this passage of abiding in the vine for us. And I would commend it to you. I'd encourage you to, to go away and read and think through um, that chapter and see how it speaks to you.